so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC Podcast. Before we get started with today's show, we want you to hear this brief message from Dan Darling and Trillian Newbell. We're excited about a brand new project, and it's called The Church and the Racial Divide. So, Trillia, maybe share a little bit of why why we're excited about it. Yeah, well, we're excited about it because this is about the church, and it is about the unity of the church. It's about what God says in His Word. It's actually a study. So churches can get together with small groups of people and study God's Word together about this topic. So what other way to not only equip and disciple, but encourage each other to learn more about what God says about racial reconciliation, harmony, unity, and this beautiful picture that we're going to see one day every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping together. Yeah, it's it's Bible teaching, right? I mean, each session takes a passage of Scripture and is taught how it applies to race. You know, the Bible talks quite a bit about race. And what I think is helpful is that this, this is okay— people in their local churches opening the scriptures saying, what does the Bible say about this? This is about God's word and how we can live and grow together as a people uh, made in his image who have been united through Christ and who will be living and worshiping together forever. If your church is interested in this, uh, you can go to lifeway.com slash the church and the racial divide. You can download it as a video download. You can purchase the kit that has DVDs. There's all kinds of resources for you and your church. So we want to encourage you to get that. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where each week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and the things you need to know about what's going on in the culture and the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me in the studio this week are my co-hosts, Lindsay Nicolay. Hello, everyone. And Brent Leatherwood. Hello, y'all. And and later in the show, we'll be talking to a special guest, uh, Daniel Ritchie, who is a pastor and evangelist based in Charlotte, North Carolina. Daniel has an incredible story. We're excited for you to hear more about that later on in the show. But for now, let's go ahead and get into it. Lindsay, what's the ERLC been talking about this week? Okay, so this week we are featuring a few good things, which, as I say, every week we feature good things. Multiple good things. <laughs> Multiple good things. Also, your intro, Brent, was extra. But continuing on, at the ERLC.com, we've got Jeff Pickering, who has an article that was originally featured in our Light Magazine issue on civility. So he interviewed two former White House staffers to talk about what civility should look like in politics. One of the staffers was with George W. Bush. The other was with uh, Barack Obama. So Michael Ware, who's who was in the Obama administration, has a great quote It gives you a taste of what the piece is like that says, civility is what grace looks like in public. And I love that. It's a call to Christians. It's how we're supposed to live our lives. Civility is what grace looks like in public. This is a a great article. I I can't recommend it highly enough. But Lindsay, I also 
it bears mentioning, you said this appeared in our Light Magazine? It appeared in Light Magazine, yes. What is Light Magazine, and how can folks get their hands on a, a physical copy of Light Magazine? So Light Magazine comes out twice a year. Uh, you can subscribe, but you can also download it for free online. So if you go to erlc.com backslash light, then you'll be able to check out all of our issues, including this one on civility. So it is a great resource. Moving on. Chelsea Patterson Sobolik, who works in our DC office, has a piece on a new study that shows that preborn babies feel pain as early as 12 weeks gestation, which is incredible. Previously, most scientists and medical professionals uh, believe that pain could be felt at 22 weeks gestational age, which is 20 weeks fetal age. But this study shows that they actually feel this a lot sooner. And um, this just highlights why we need to be vigilant in protecting babies in the womb. One of the reasons why we want to be vigilant in protecting babies in the womb. The release of this article also lines up with um, a package of pro-life bills that's being voted on in the Senate. That's right. This just shows why it is vital. Every step that we can take legally towards making our culture a more pro-life culture for the most vulnerable is is a positive step. And so it's vital. That's right. And the focal point here is in thinking about the fact that babies in the womb are capable of feeling and experiencing pain. That is something that should just register with everyone, regardless of maybe where you come into the conversation uh, about abortion. When you realize that that infant in the womb is capable of feeling pain, that is something that just at a deep human level should register with us. And so this is one of the things that the pro-life movement has been focusing on. It's just trying to help advance the pro-life cause by getting people to focus on, on this specific thing. Yep. And it's it's why it's a paramount issue for us here at the URLC. Right. It highlights the work that we do. And Chelsea is on the ground doing this work. And so we're thankful that she wrote about it. Um, and then finally, as, as part of our highlights, we have our co-host, Brent Leatherwood. <laughs> with a piece. Fantastic. Yes, with a piece on President's Day. So he helps us appreciate President's Day by writing a little bit about the history of the executive office and then recommending some resources. So Brent, can you tell us a few of those resources that you recommended? Well, so for those of y'all out there who currently have Netflix, go ahead and get on it and binge watch The West Wing uh, because it, it's an idealized, and, and I talk about this in, in the article, admittedly, it's an idealized look at life in the White House, but it is gifted writing, some of the best writing in television history, matched up with an incredible array of talented folks, actors and actresses who are portraying life in the White House. So I, I can't recommend, like, that's my go-to. Josh, isn't it yours? It's my go-to as well. I mean, The West Wing is simply the best show that I've ever seen. And it is, it may, it's it's easily one of the best shows that's ever been created for television. Aaron Sorkin, uh, the creator and the main writer on the show, is just unbelievably talented. And it will make you, it will, as the kids say, give you all the feels. Yeah, there you go. And well, it's my go-to if I'm having trouble falling asleep. <laughs> But um bum. Sorry, hot Thanks, take. Lindsay. You are just you're a dream assassin. Brent, you know you're, you're a great American, and Lindsay, you're I'm a great American too because I'm allowed to have a dissenting opinion. Oh, there you go. Oh, I'm reading a book about dissent. Okay, we that's not a part of this though. Uh some other resources. Michael Beschloss, who is a historian, he has a couple of great books: Presidential Courage and Presidents at War. So if you've got some more time uh to devote instead of maybe just 45 minutes at a time for a West Wing episode. Dig into those uh, two books that are awesome. Honestly, anything that Michael Beschloss writes, you but, need to. 
be. I can't let us move on, Brent, without asking the question, what is your favorite presidential biography? Uh, probably Washington uh, by... Cherno. Thank you. Brent. It, it was so. Just take it. Watch it. Well, just just ask the question over again. <clears throat> but I can't let us move on without asking this question, Brent. What is your favorite presidential biography? Uh, recently, I have really enjoyed Washington by Ron Chernow. I think Washington had the toughest job of any of our presidents because he was the one there to set the the kind of model for everybody that came after him and. George Washington, great American. Okay, so that wraps up a look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Thanks, Lindsay. And so that's also a great segue into our section on culture. So Brent, as we are looking at the craziness going on in the world, what things specifically are you paying attention to in in the world of culture this week? Right, so uh, great segue. We just got through talking about President's Day. What better way to intro talking about the people running to be the next president of the United States? Exactly. So... This week on Wednesday, we had the Nevada debate. Nevada, Nevada. So if you're running for president, you definitely say Nevada. And if you're from there, you say Nevada. I think if you're from the South, you say Nevada. Okay. I certainly do. So for those of us who didn't watch it, fill us in on what happened. Surely none of us as uh, cultural watchers uh, around this table and around these mics didn't partake in watching it last night. I watched the whole thing. Me too. I didn't. Oh, but Lindsay. I have a Jesus opinion. juke because I was at Bible study. That's right. And that's studying a, judges, which not too far from what apropos. our culture looks like right now. Well, so anyway, so coming into the debate, though, m- most uh, analysts were paying attention to the fact that this was the debut on the debate stage for former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg, who just this week became the highest spending presidential candidate in history in terms of his television advertising. He has sank nearly $340 million. He's only been in the race for 10 weeks. And the fact that he has already surpassed that historical amount is mind-blowing. And he's got another, you know, $1.5 billion that he's going to liquidate in this race, or so he's told people. Yeah, which is just, you know, again, a fraction of his total wealth, but it also made him quite the target on the debate stage on Wednesday. That's absolutely right. So obviously coming in off the stage, he hasn't been in public life for a few years, probably is going to be some rust. And there's also a brand new record for these other candidates who have been debating eight previous times to parse through, and man, did they. Those first probably 20 minutes or so, it was like they were ganging up on Michael Bloomberg. That's exactly right. And it took over an hour, really, for him to kind of settle into the debate. Uh, but it was it was just raucous. I mean, and it was honestly, you know, some of the debates have been uh, criticized for, frankly, just being kind of boring. Well, this one was anything but boring. That's right. I mean, every single candidate... Uh, was taking aim at different candidates because they're occupying now sort of the same lanes and they need those voters because as we get into the calendar, resources are becoming scarce and people need to have good showings in these upcoming uh, caucuses in Nevada and primaries that are coming up after that. Well, let's let's help people out who won in case they were like Lindsay and didn't didn't watch. Yeah, it's hard to say who won, uh, but what I can say is I don't think anyone is has impeded uh, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, his march to winning in Nevada. That's right. He, I mean, he he won because he didn't lose. That's right. Bingo. So, well, when are we going to stage our own debate on the ERLC podcast? 
I mean, that happens right here every week. Every day. That's right. Yeah. So thanks for listening. <laughs> uh, elsewhere in culture, this is noteworthy. It's probably something that flew under the radar. The Boy Scouts of America filed for bankruptcy. Which is just a huge thing in American life. If you think about the fact that, like, the Boy Scouts are, we, we've talked frequently in the last couple of weeks about just distrust in institutions. I mean, the Boy Scouts are a staple of American life. And to, so to see that they filed for bankruptcy and uh, is, is shocking. And then when you consider why, it's just a, it's kind of a snapshot of the times that we're living in. Yeah, it, it's probably not going to be something where the, the Boy Scouts completely leave our culture, but it is, as you just said, it's a lamentable moment because for so many individuals, the Boy Scouts are an institution for young men in their formative years. And uh, obviously, they've been racked by scandal recently, and that, that's a loss. Did y'all participate in Boy Scouts? Honestly, honestly, I never did. I never did. Uh, Boy Scouts was just not a thing. I was doing too much baseball. But apparently our producer, Gary, he was in the mix, like doing all, all the Boy right. Scout things. All right, Gary, the, the power behind the throne was a Boy Scout. I was a brownie. But I, I love that. We Probably because I thought we got to eat brownies. You, you had your, your little... I had little, um, some patches. You had yeah. patches? Wow. Uh, and a sash. And I don't remember what the patches were for, but for a short season of time, I was a brownie. There you go. Uh, elsewhere, uh, why Utah? Why? Why was this necessary? So uh, the latest assault on traditional biblical marriage occurred this week in Utah as polygamy was approved by the Utah State Senate. It now goes to the House where many people expect that it will pass there, but this is something a lot of us are paying attention to. So the move basically, help me understand if I, if I got this right, Brent, but basically the move was from, they didn't make it legal, but they decriminalized it, which means that effectively it's no longer a felony. You won't serve jail or prison time for uh, being involved in a polygamous relationship now. And so what, what, is, what do you make of this? Well, I, I mean, they, they kind of trivialized it. Here's what it says. The bill, which would treat the offense of plural marriage as a simple infraction on par with a parking ticket, now moves to the Utah House of Representatives. That's just, no, that that is an assault on the institution of marriage. So, And frankly, it's just something that we can really lament as an organization that is pro traditional marriage and pro-family uh, to see this kind of trivializing of something that is a, again, another just sacred institution in American life is something that should, frankly, I mean, it should, it should bother all of us. And as Christians, it's something that we shouldn't just accept. It's something that uh, we should, to whatever extent we're able to, to push back against and, mm-hmm. and to, you know, to say, to say so, to say that it's not acceptable. Well, and we're seeing it normalized just in pop culture as well. So the HGTV episode where that featured a thruple, a thruple. I guess, for mm-hmm. the first time. even Which is a, a thing they told us just a few years ago was never going to happen. That's exactly. Right. So that, and then a show that I was watching on CBS featured a, a woman who was invited into, in her words, a polyamorous relationship. And just to see that normalized on prime time and and the concern on the show was not that it was a polyamorous relationship, but that she wouldn't uh, get the respect that she deserved in the relationship. So it's definitely being normalized in pop culture. Yeah, and it, it passed on a vote of 29 to zero. I mean, this passed unanimously. That mm. is, that's really hard to believe. And it's a, a turning point potentially for the culture there in Utah, and it's going to have ramifications elsewhere. In addition to that, last Friday, as this podcast was coming out, it was announced that a new conservative Baptist network uh, has been formed. 
which is interesting since the Southern Baptist Convention is in fact a conservative Baptist network of cooperating churches. Yeah, so we talked about the uh, SBC last week on the podcast and talked about the ERLC's uh, connection to it. The One of the reasons that I'm proud to be a Southern Baptist is because uh, our denomination has a long legacy of more than 150 years of standing strong for the Bible, of holding fast to the essentials of the Christian faith and to holding fast to Baptist distinctives and to being proud of our Baptist identity. And so uh, this is definitely something for Southern Baptists and, and maybe those beyond SBC life to pay attention to. And, yeah. and look, in a, in a network of 47,000 churches, there are going to be these kind of networks that um, crop up because there's going to be natural affinities that different churches have for one another. That's that's not a big deal. Ultimately, we want people to be vigilant about the gospel and making sure that that we are uh, staying true to what the gospel and scripture calls us to. But the SBC is a solid institution that is rooted in uh, our our scriptures, and so that's something to be really thankful for. Additionally, this week you may have seen an article on RNS that talks about the fact that uh, we now are given another chance at the RLC to prove just how essential we are to the mission that Southern Baptists have given us. Yeah, I mean, the ERLC has a long legacy. It hasn't always been called the ERLC. It was called the Christian Life Commission prior to that, and something even prior to that that escapes my memory at the moment. But we are the moral and public policy arm of our Southern Baptist Convention. Our job is to help equip churches to stand... uh, shoulder to shoulder with churches as we work together to not only advance the cause of the gospel, but to help Christians grapple with what it looks like to live uh, in a complex culture, to address uh, social issues that the gospel certainly speaks to, and to equip Christians for, as we like to say, all of life. What we want to do is help Christians apply the gospel to all of life. And so, uh, frankly, you know, as three ERLC staff members, uh, this is any opportunity to to highlight, to showcase uh, the work that we're doing is something that, frankly, we just welcome because uh, we are incredibly proud of of the good work that we have the opportunity to do here to to serve Southern Baptists and to advance the kingdom of Christ. Right. Dr. Moore, he often talks about this notion of gospel integrity, which is a robust way of the gospel uh, calling us into action in, in so many different area, areas, whether it is speaking up for the most vulnerable, the unborn, uh, religious liberty for Christians across the globe, fighting for traditional marriage and family, speaking up for uh, our brothers and sisters in terms of racial unity. I mean, we just speak into so many different areas, and that's what it's that's what gospel integrity is is all about. Well, and as the managing editor of content, as one who gets to see um, the questions that up front, the questions that people have, questions that individuals are sending into our uh, info account and to see what people are writing about and what they're interested in makes me thankful for the work that the ERLC does. We put out solid content that is faithful to the scriptures. And um, if, like Brent mentioned, if you look on our site, you will see a host of topics dealing with human dignity, dealing with uh, religious persecution, and um, how we can support our brothers and sisters here in the United States and across the globe, dealing with marriage, family, parenting, practical things. Uh, so, I am thankful to be a part of the ERLC, 
and thankful for the work that we do, and I'm confident that um, our work will be shown to be faithful to the gospel. Yeah, absolutely. And look, we would not be able to do that without the sacrificial giving of our cooperating churches within the Southern Baptist denomination. Yes. So we are thankful uh, for the churches that allow us to do this great work. And speaking of our work, this week, Barna Research talked about what is really on the mind of pastors and church leaders. And I just thought this was a really interesting study, and we like getting this kind of feedback. Well, before I forget to mention, I'm glad that you're bringing this up because we have an email that goes out every Friday called The Weekly, and we have a lead story that we feature. And this week, it's this that's going to be featured. So, oh. that, So it's timely. No doubt. It, yes, it is timely. And if you, as a listener, are interested in our weekly, you can sign up at ERLC.com. Just scroll down just a little bit there, and there's a place for you to put your email. Mm, Josh, why don't you tell us, what are those top five current concerns for pastors? Yeah, so I'll just rattle these off really quickly. Uh, the first one is watered-down gospel teachings. The second is our culture's shift to a secular age. The third is poor discipleship models. Uh, the next one is addressing complex social issues with biblical integrity. And then the final one uh, in this rounding out this top five is prosperity gospel teachings. And I'll even go ahead and just tack on that sixth one there because it's about reaching a younger audience. And so even as we look at uh, that list of concerns, and there's a great chart here that we'll link to this article in the show notes. You, you should go and look at this because it lists, uh, you know, over a dozen things there that you can just see what is on the mind of America's pastors. But as I'm looking at this, uh, especially as it relates to our work at the URLC, that number two thing, our culture's shift to a secular age. One of our main goals is to help Christians learn how, like I said to earlier, to apply the gospel to all of life and what it looks like to navigate a complex culture. I mean, that's what we do day in and day out. And so as Lindsay is posting articles, as all of our team members are working on trying to uh, find out what, what are these issues, how should Christians be thinking carefully about them, uh, we are constantly trying to provide resources uh, for people on the ground who are doing uh, the hard work of, of ministry, whether that's, regardless of what that context is. Yeah, and those pastors, those church leaders, those life group and small group leaders, they are they are in the thick of it, and that's why we exist, is to help them get equipped on these things and to do so uh, with faithful integrity to the gospel. So, Lindsay—oh. Well, I was going to say, and if you go to our website, then you can find a host of free resources. That's how we get these resources out to many leaders, pastors, church members. So you've got articles there. You have past event messages if you haven't been able to come to a conference. Uh, you have short videos, and you have access to podcasts like this one. There you go. Um, so yeah, so Lindsay, Josh, that's your look at This Week in Culture. So we're excited to talk today to Daniel Ritchie. Daniel is a person who has just a fascinating testimony about what God has done in his life. As you'll hear more about in just a second, Daniel was born without arms. And God has used this physical disability in his life to not only work and call him to faith in Christ, but to give him a, a, a testimony and a ministry that has impacted the lives of thousands of people. And so uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation, and we're going to talk to Daniel now. So Daniel, tell us about yourself and uh, what you're doing serving the Lord in ministry right now. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my name is Daniel Ritchie. I live in Huntersville, North Carolina, which is just north of Charlotte. 
have a wife named Heather, and we've been married 14 years, and we got two kiddos, seven-year-old boy named Teague, and then a four-year-old little girl named Elliot, and uh, and then we have a 120-pound Great Dane, so we're living the uh, wow. living the dream in, uh, in a lot of ways. And then, man, just ministry-wise, and, and what I get to do day-to-day is um, I, I serve as an evangelist and speaker, and so gives me the opportunity to partner with uh, churches and schools and colleges and, and seminaries just by proclaiming the gospel and encouraging disciples to make disciples. And, you know, just in, in full recognition of, you know, just the testimony that God has given me and being a guy who's born without arms, it definitely uh, captures people's attention. But then too, it just, it gives me a great opportunity to point people to the fact that, God redeems broken things and even my my broken body and identity that God in his grace has has redeemed and is using for his glory and much of the same is true for for us you know just just generally as people he takes broken people rescues redeems and then sends them out and so man I spend spend my day to day just trying to uh trying to preach that good gospel message Daniel I love the way that God is uniquely using you in ministry and also in a really tangible way. And uh, Mm -hmm. so in the midst of all that you have going on, what's one thing that God is teaching you in this season of life and ministry? God's really trying to teach me uh, stillness. I I spent 12 years as a student pastor. And so now as, as a guy who's serving more in a parachurch role, my heart always wants to go on to the next thing, and and I'm not doing a great job of just being still uh, before the Lord. And so um, God's just really trying to teach me at, at times to abide, to not, um, I think, try to do so many things for Him and prove myself to Him, but I think to serve well, but then to also take the time uh, of just, man, resting in Him and appreciating the fact of of His love and of His care uh, for me, and so that's that's definitely where I am now, just trying to to be obedient in that and and to uh, to rest in Him more than I think my own efforts in a lot of ways. So, Daniel, uh, our podcast it, it focuses kind of uniquely on Christians and culture, and and as an evangelist, you're probably coming into uh, contact with folks all around culture. I'm mm-hmm. I'm curious, what are you and and those folks that you are engaging with, what are you paying attention to right now in in our culture? Man, that's a that's a great question. So it's, it's a weighty question. Um you know, I th- I think there's a there's a lot of things obviously going on in the culture, but I think especially the most tangible one these days is just how incredibly divided and tribal we are like not just not just within the church but just as a as a culture and as a people uh here in the states we're we're just man we think that if you don't say what i say or wholeheartedly believe what i believe then you're the enemy and that sort of, I think, adoption uh, of the fact that we need to be uniform in everything has started to spill over into the church. And we're having just these knockdown dragouts over things that are not like gospel issues. Like we're, we're attacking brothers in Christ on, on the basis of just surfacey things. And, um, and I think so many people 
they don't they don't have a taste for that. They want to be done with that. They want to, I think, really be able to stand arm in arm with true brothers and sisters in Christ and and move past the petty stuff. And so I think a lot of people are trying to reconcile uh, these deep divides o- over things that truly are third tier issues and and not gospel issues, and and to be able to move on as the church, man, to get people the gospel message that they truly need and to live out that that defining love like Jesus talks about that if we can't show love for each other then the world isn't going to see the love that we're trying to point them to in the first place. Daniel, what you said is so true. And so I just want to provide some encouragement through your story. So you recently published a book telling your story. So mm-hmm. can you tell us about how God has worked in your life to bring you to faith and to call you to ministry? Oh man, God um, God has been super gracious, I, I think to me in a lot of ways that, that you know, even though I was, I was born just completely different than, than a lot of other people and growing up as a, as a kid who was like, you know, I was the only armless person I knew. And so I, I faced a lot of identity issues growing up, feeling like I was uh, far too different or um, just broken, I, I think, in terms of how people would view me or see me. And I remember just struggling with God's love for me and with others' love for me. And and as a teenager, to have the student pastor sit down and talk about just the gospel truly in, in, the, in the fact that, you know, God doesn't show his love for me in, you know, having provided me arms or given me the circumstances I would have chosen. God shows his love for me in that while I was still a sinner, Jesus goes to the cross and, and dies for me. And, um, and that was a complete identity-shaking moment for me to not have to build my hope and my identity on the words of others, but to build my hope and my identity on just the cross of Christ and and what His gospel um, lays out for me. And, um, and so really quickly after that, I mean, I was 15 when I trusted Jesus as Lord, and then at 16, God calls me into ministry. And that whole year in between, I fought God all the way. I was a natural introvert. I truly just hated people. And so for, for God to call me to people was was insane, uh, I think, in, in my mind. But I knew the hope that I had in Him, and I couldn't rest until everybody around me knew that same hope and, and much the same these days. It's just like I, I can rarely sit still realizing that there are so many that don't know the gospel of Jesus and I want them to know. And so that's, um, man, that's why I spend my days doing what I do is so people can know the the same hope that we as his church know. That's so great, man. And so by the way, tell them the name of the book. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the book is called My Affliction for His Glory. Yeah. And it's a, I mean, it's, it's powerful. And to tell your story, hear your testimony and see what God is, is doing through you is so encouraging. So for this last question, switching, switching gears for a second, I, I should just put the uh, disclaimer in there. You and I are legit friends. So I feel, (laughs) I feel fine about asking this, even though I imagine people as, as it's coming out of my mouth, uh, people will be just kind of cringing at the question. But so you were born without arms, which means that you do things differently than a lot of other people do. So uh, what, what questions do you, get asked the most and mostly like the things that you have to do uh, with your feet. What, what are those things that you find people being the most like struck by or surprised by? Oh man. Um, I think probably the, the question I get the most is especially, you know, cause uh, I, I, I travel to speak most, most weekends. And so I show up 
And people are always super confused that there's nobody with me. And like I showed up by myself. And right. so people people are always going to look at me and go, wait, you drive? And, uh, and it's like, yeah, yeah, I drive uh, one foot on the steering wheel, other, other foot for the pedals and to like watch like the color drains out of people's faces. Cause, cause I think they sit there and think, man, there's no way right. that's legal. But, uh, but yeah, man, super, super thankful. God gave me some, some talented toes and, uh, and I'm able to drive. But I think most people are, are legit surprised either by the driving or by the fact that like uh, I, I mow our lawn and weed eat and, you know, do all this stuff around the yard, like use, use chainsaws and stuff like that, which that using chainsaws is probably not a smart uh, move <laughs> for an armless man. But, uh, but yeah, I think, I think most people are super uh, surprised when they find out like I, I do all the yard work and, you know, whatever, whatever stuff around the house I can do and do it, do it all with my feet. I don't, I don't doubt that at all, man. Well, obviously, uh, God has like, none of that has, has hindered you in terms of being a witness, uh, for the kingdom. My favorite thing to tell people about you besides, uh, you know, the fact that you're serving Christ is just that, uh, my, my favorite stat about Daniel Richie is that you're a crossfitter. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, hey, I'm 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 trying my best to not be the uh, the portly pastor. I'm trying to trying to stay a little <laughs> l- little trim, or as much as I can, at least. That's fantastic. Well, Daniel, we just want to say thanks so much uh, for taking the time to talk to us today. We hope people will take the time to check out your book and check into your ministry because God is really using you in some powerful ways. Thank you, Daniel. Absolutely. Hey, guys. Thank, thank you all so much. As we say every week, one of our favorite things about working together at the ERLC are just the conversations that we share together. And typically for us, that happens in our lunchroom. And so now it's the time in the show where we share with you the things that we've been talking about and what's on our mind. But first, Josh, let's hear a word from our sponsor. This episode of the ERLC podcast was sponsored by The Good Book Company, publisher of Jesus and the Very Big Surprise, a new children's storybook by well-known singer and TV presenter Randall Goodgame. This beautifully illustrated hardback book is based on the parable in Luke 12 and teaches children that Jesus will return, and when he does, there will be an amazing party where, surprise, he will serve his faithful servants. From the same best-selling series that brought you God's very good idea and the garden, the curtain, and the cross. Find out more about Jesus and the very big surprise at thegoodbook.com. Brent, what are you bringing to the table this week? One thing that was on my mind this week especially was an insightful piece from last month that was run uh, over at TGC. And it was written by our friend Jared Wilson. He's a professor at Spurgeon College at Midwestern Seminary. And I just think it explains so much about our time. So I'll read this quick uh, pull quote from it. We live in crucial times for the church, especially in the West. There are skirmishes aplenty, opportunities every day to go to war with our neighbors, with our brethren, with every Twitter rando with an itchy keyboard finger. We are called to wage relentless war on our sin and the spiritual powers of wickedness. But not every invitation to battle with flesh and blood ought to be accepted. And rarely, should such invitations be given. I just, it's a great piece. He kind of plays off of the recent movie, 1917, which is all about warfare. And it's just a rich piece that I could not recommend highly enough. Jared Wilson's such a careful thinker. And this uh, article, it just speaks to something that is, again, just kind of defining of the times that we live in. Uh, that line that every not every uh, invitation to battle with flesh and blood ought to be accepted. Yeah, like that's, that's exactly right. And I think so often uh, we can just be enticed. We can be pulled into fights where we spend hours and hours, whether it's on social media uh, or uh, just even sometimes in person to argue about things that ultimately 
our opinion is not going to have any kind of persuasive effect, even on the person we're talking to. And it's certainly not going to change the way that we live. And so, yeah, I think that this is a word that all of us need to hear. And I would encourage you to go and check it out. So Lindsay, what are you bringing this week? Okay. Less war, more fun. The doppelganger challenge. Do y'all know what a doppelganger is? Uh, Mine's Josh Wester. That's Uh, actually true. (laughs) <laughs> Not true. <laughs> so a doppelganger challenge. We it's This has happened before on social media uh, where you post a picture of, I think it's a celebrity that you look like. Right, I don't know if it right. has to be a celebrity. Again, mine is Josh Wester. You're, so you do not look like Josh Wester, but oh, our okay. listeners can go online and, and see if they agree with that. So does anybody know what my doppelganger is? Can y'all just guess? And be careful what you say. Maybe you shouldn't guess. I feel like I'm in danger here. You are in danger. So I all the time get told by strangers that I look like Emma Stone. Oh, that's exactly right. All the time. That's exactly right. So I don't think I look like her. Who's Emma Stone? Yes, Brent doesn't know who Emma Stone is. just tell me like a movie. The Help. Have you seen the movie The Help? Yes. That Emma Stone was the lead character. One of the lead characters. Yeah, okay. You favor her a little bit. I forget her name. Yeah, Emma Stone. In no her her character name in the movie. So, <laughs> I get I've gotten told at Chewy's. I've gotten told in the airport while I was exchanging currency. I've gotten told at a, a yogurt place, a frozen a froyo place when that was a thing. Uh, I've gotten told by an airport security person. So just by multiple people that I look like Emma Stone. Anyway. Yeah, but I got to go on the record and say your hair poof has got to be better than anything she could pull off. <laughs> no. I have to go on the record and say your hair poof, Brent's hair poof, and Gary's hair poof are bigger than mine. Gary is the undisputed champion of <laughs> male hair poofery. So do y'all, do you ever get told you look like celebrities? Just just wondering. I get told I look like Josh Wester. Oh my word. See, you Brent. think that's a joke, but that's actually a thing that happens all the time. But for me, so, because true. mine's pretty awesome, I'll go ahead and say it. Yes. Uh, and I may have oversold it just then. I am frequently told that I look like former governor of Ohio, John Kasich. And I hear it oh, all the okay, time. Oh, okay, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Brent, how about you? A youthful besides John me. Kasich. Yes, besides me. Any any other doppelgangers in your life? No. Okay. Well, there you have it. Well, that settles that. At least so, I'm original. The doppelganger challenge. All right. What well, about you, Josh? What do you bring into the lunchroom? <laughs> Well, honestly, I feel I feel like I did well this week because for my thing, it's I just wanted to tell you guys about this uh, book that I picked up a few months ago. It's called Piercing Heaven, Prayers of the Puritans. And I've just been using that uh, to kind of open my devotional reading every day. Uh, and I've been using it for, for several weeks now. And I'm just absolutely loving it. Each one of those has just a short prayer. And as I'm reading it, I just, I, I open, before I open the Bible, I take this book, read one of those prayers, try to focus my heart and my mind on things that are above, and then dive into my Bible reading. It's been really, really useful for me. We'll link to it. If you would like to check it out, you can purchase it on Amazon, but it's just got uh, it's got short prayers that have been really, really beneficial. Speaking of things that are beneficial, each week we want to leave you with an ERLC resource. So, Lindsay, what's our resource going to be this week? So, this week we're listening to a little clip by Robbie Gallaty, uh, and the title of his talk was Making Disciples Who Engage the Culture, and he spend some time talking about how we can't leave believers, especially newborn believers, to themselves once they trust in the Lord, but that we've got to equip them or else they won't know how to properly engage culture with the Word. 
That's great. And so we'll get to that clip in just a moment. But before we sign off here, we just want to say thank you to everyone who has been listening to the podcast, those of you who have helped uh, spread the word by sharing it on social media. We want to just say, if you would like to help more people learn about the podcast, one of the best things you can do is go into your podcast app and and leave us just a brief rating. Uh, Leave us a rating or a brief written review to help people. Uh, It just helps us get on the right side of the algorithm that helps more people discover and learn about the podcast. But uh, for Brent and Lindsay and myself, we will be be back next Friday with more content. See, if we want to engage the culture, we have to start with the people who are already a part of the culture. And I really believe the reason we're not seeing more believers engage the culture is because they're drawing from an empty well. There's nothing there to draw from, and they will go out and share their faith. They will go out from time to time and stand up for what's right, but over time, they will not consistently do it. Why? because they have never been equipped to do the work of ministry. If you get nothing else, get this before I close. One minor tweak to your ministry will make a big difference. Here it is. Let us stop thinking about baptism as the finish line, and let's start thinking about it as the starting line. See, we need to move, guys. Listen, ladies, we need to move from this decisionistic culture, and we need to create a disciplistic culture, and our people are dying for that. See, by us not as leaders equipping our people to do the work of ministry, we are paralyzing and crippling them from the God-given talents and abilities that God has blessed them with. So let me leave you with this. What's the answer to engaging the culture? I believe it's staring on us every day we get up to lead. It's the vast amount of undiscipled men and women who occupy the padded seats and the pews of our churches. Let us do something about it, amen.